HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is being brought to you by Martha and Marley Spoon. Martha Stewart's best recipes and fresh ingredients delivered to your door. Get three free meals today when you use code HERITAGE at MarleySpoon.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And I have a question for you. In looking at American cookbooks, past and present, what do you see? Do they describe the nation, what the nation was eating in a particular period? Or do they prescribe what should be on the tables of American homes? Do we actually cook from these books? Or are they read as aspirational essays tempting us into unknown tastes and worlds? My guest today, Megan Elias, examined the wealth of information contained in cookbooks, not just for the recipes, of course, but as a genre of publishing, and she traced their genealogy. Her new book, Food on the Page, released this week by University of Pennsylvania Press, is the first comprehensive history of American cookbooks. From the publication of the first slim cookbook in 1796 to the present-day onslaught of shelves of books filled with colorful photos, she explains where contemporary assumptions about American food came from and where they might lead. Megan Elias is director of online courses at the Gilder Lerman Institute of American History and is the author of numerous books, including Stir It Up, Home Economics in American Culture, also from University of Pennsylvania Press. Welcome, Megan. It's great to have you here. And great to have you back here. (laughs) You were here before. Um, You have, I mean, you have presented this history of American cookbooks. Wow. That's quite an undertaking. What led you, what what, what led you to even attempt this? We're talking about how many years of cookbooks? 
Um, all of them? Yeah, about 200 <laughs> years. Well, if we start with yeah. Amelia Simmons, obviously, right. when I referred to the Slim Cookbook of right. 1796. Whatever possessed you? <laughs> <laughs> it's a question I ask myself constantly as I was doing it. Um, I The simple answer is that I began in the middle, and to explain... The middle, I had to keep working backwards and mm. forwards, and it stretched and it stretched and um, became, you know, once you're in the early 19th century, you think, oh, well, I'll just run back into the 18th century a little <laughs> bit. And once you're in the late 19th century, oh, I'll just run forward into the 20th century. So um, it really it really grew. My initial interest was in looking at um, American how American food was defined in this pivotal moment at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century when America was beginning to see itself on an international stage. Mm -hmm. And so who did Americans see themselves as in that moment? A lot of historians have tried to answer that question. And, and for me, I thought food would be a really interesting way to look at that question because part of what was happening was that America, American influence was growing and... Um, and and also American territory, America was claiming territories abroad. So I was wondering how, um, I mean, and this really sort of came out of an interest in how did the acquisition of uh, the Philippines and Puerto Rico affect American food? Yeah, and that answer got lost <laughs> way back at the beginning. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. It's, it's interesting because it, you... You mentioned that you started in the middle, and I can see, of course, in the early days, there weren't that many books, so it wasn't right. that much. But right. it's, um, as you or somebody said, it's, it's as much um, a history of American cookbooks as it is also a history of the discourse defining right. American food, which you just explained. And I like to say when when America finally grew up and developed you know, a taste for food, um, it's... The genie out. You talk about um, taking, studying cookbook writing as a, a serious genre mm -hmm. because it was not. And you say, look, you're looking at the history through food. I mean, looking using food as a lens to study history is more and more common these days. Where it would have been totally uh, discredited. Right, earlier. right. And I think a lot of that came from my own family, who are a family who talk about books a lot and. I noticed that a lot of the books that we talked about also were cookbooks and people would talk about the important cookbook in their life. And as, as you know, younger members of families sort of come of age, that they would be given cookbooks that, that older members had, had found really helpful to them. Um, and so I had, I had always wondered why cookbooks weren't talked about as a genre of writing, that they were um, instructions and not seen as as literature in itself so that was something that i think was kind of lurking for a long time and then came together with my interest in history yeah. well that leads me to a thought that i had in thinking like wow how would you even go about this and but to a question that i want to ask you and that is what were some of the major challenges in undertaking this because some of the cookbooks yeah. are strictly recipe books mm -hmm. And no commentary. Right. Um, mostly, I looked, um, I was looking for a couple of things at exactly the same time. So I was looking for uh, trends to emerge. Um, and then I, within trends, I was looking for commentary about American cooking. Um, sometimes I knew a book was really important because it had been mentioned a lot, mm -hmm. but it didn't have commentary. So I had to go back and read it um, in a way that I think a lot of food historians and food studies people would recognize, which is looking for inclusions and exclusions. Um, what does it say if 
uh, certain flavors are there and certain flavors aren't that you might see in other books at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, how are things laid out? You know, we we often just pick up a cookbook and and just start flipping through, but each cookbook is organized, and you know as you talk to publishers and cookbook writers that, that there's a lot of thought put into the organization of a book. Um, what the When you go back and carefully look at the organization, there's always a message for you. The message is usually this is what a proper meal is, or this is how your day ought to roll out. Um, and when you look at that message, then there are underlying messages, which are um, if, you know, if it's, if it's a kind of situation where there are three meals and they're di- of different sizes um, and the, the later one is the largest meal, then that, um, that assumes a certain amount of labor that has to take place behind the scenes. And who's doing that exactly, labor? Exactly, yeah. right? And it, and it often won't tell you who's the expected worker, but you can begin to fill that in and understand that the book is not just a recipe of things to eat, but it's always about a way to live and an assumed proper and correct mm-hmm. way to live. Well, that's why I mentioned in the opening about, is it, you know, are cookbooks a prescribed way of cooking or living, what you should be eating? Well, now this is the, you know, the meat of choice. This is the meal you should be serving guests when they arrive, you know. It, there is a lot of, of prescriptive um, writing that goes on in this rules yes. or you know or prescriptive and suggestive suggestive too. right yeah. that's better <laughs> I like that. well sometimes you know like um maria parlo is very severe about what's what is okay and what is not so she goes well beyond the suggestive but um and also i would say alice waters is very um certain about <laughs> what is proper right. uh, but right. some are more open yeah um uh, so after you know looking at so many i mean well you went forward you went backward a lot of books. Uh, and you mentioned that you would look for trends. You would look for right. things to emerge. And we're not talking about, like, let's say when we, when we look to see, um, as, you know, as culinary historians or as food historians, when vanilla first started to be used in baking, we'll see, well, when did that first emerge in a recipe and go back and see, you know, when was the first time we saw it in print and, and coming out. But you're not looking for ingredients. You were looking for something else. Tell us what some of those categories would be. Yeah, so I'm, I was really dependent on titles. Uh, and so I had to get really creative about reading titles. And this is the, this is the very nerdy part of, um, of, my, of my book when I explain how I did the research. But it's really necessary to, um, to explain what I did. It's interesting. <laughs> oh, it's <good>. not nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I read through the catalog of the Library of Congress. I also used WorldCat for super nerds there. Um, And I just entered the terms cookery and American. And then I would go sort of a decade at a time and watch for words coming up within that category, cookery and American. And I can say that because I did that, there are quite a lot of stories that I that I definitely missed. And there are other books that can be written um, using the same catalog that Mm -hmm. I will be really, really excited to read. But what I saw emerging were um, certain kinds of words or concerns. So beginning around the period of the First World War, I started to see a concern with the body, with the size of bodies slimming, but also fattening books, um, which is a wonderful category, which I wish we could get back to sometimes, the books to <laughs> right. fatten you up. Um, and so I'd see, okay, there's something going on here. People are thinking about food as a way to construct their bodies differently, to make them thinner, or in some cases to make them fatter, to make them stronger. So I'd 
I sort of note down, is this something real? Am I really seeing this trend? And then see if there were, you know, a significant number of books um, and then follow that trend by by getting as many books as I could on my desk, on my shelf in the um, New York Public Library Wertheim study and um, just looking to see what was going on in those books. If there was there were common threads, which, of course, in the, the diet books, there definitely were. Um, mostly they were focused on women. And, you know, you can you can probably imagine some of the trends in those books. And then I just kept looking. There were some times when I thought I knew what I was going to be seeing. And I did sometimes see. Um, I saw, you know, I saw a big movement towards the use of the term natural, sometimes organic, sometimes whole food. Uh, when you would pretty much expect it, if you know anything about American history and you lived through the 60s and 70s, that's when you start to see it. But it also popped up earlier in the 40s. So there's a little flurry of interest in uh, in organic food and in natural food. Mm. Um, and that surprised me. So I said, oh, that's out of place in my own mind. And so I have to go and follow it up and see what it's about. So sometimes what I was looking at were anomalies and sometimes they were bigger trends. And I wanted to really focus on the big trends as much as possible. Right, right. Um, you mentioned uh, the 40s. Mm-hmm. Then there must have been uh, quite a few books where things popped up on economy because in yes. the post-war time and, and what was happening, or, the, or during the war, when you have yeah. to have a victory garden and, and economize. Um, and I love those books. The books that are, the books that happen during wartime uh, and it's really First World War and Second World War. You don't see it for Korea or Vietnam because there's no rationing. But the the books that have to deal with substitutions, uh, and sometimes this happens in vegetarian cookbooks too. So it's something neat to look for. When you're working with substitutions, you're working, you're you're sort of revealing what's the expected. Mm-hmm. So if like Moosewood Cookbook throws a lot of cheese on stuff, <laughs> and that's because there's this middle-class expectation of a certain amount of protein in every meal, but they're not going to do it with meat. So they have to find a way around it. And I, I just love finding the, the, uh, the presumption underneath the recipe. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's where you have to truly read, you know, read with an open mind, read with, yeah. you know, between the lines yes. and, and read with a, a bit of knowledge of what, what it is you're going for. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's, I, I commend you on, <laughs> on taking, making those uh, exceptions. Um, the aside from the these larger categories that you were identifying, I'm sure that there were certain dishes that must have popped up that yes. were signifiers of of something wealth or or right. um, regionality or yeah. So there there are three dishes that um, really came. They, they signified a lot, um, and one was uh, not surprising. Maybe was salad. So salad came. A, really, in the starting in the 1920s, salad came to mean um, it, well. It was a very contested term because it, it meant different things for different people. The idea of the green, the fresh green salad with a little bit of garlic crouton rubbed around inside the bowl that signaled sophistication and an understanding about French cooking. The other kind of salad that was more popular in America, um, the kind of almost like a composed salad, salads made with meats, chickens, shrimp. Um, and then also these very decorative salads that are mm-hmm. often really widely mocked these days. Jello salads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Beautiful works Molded of art. Molded salads, right. right. <laughs> um, that those came to signify a lack of sophistication and everything that was wrong with American cooking. And if you, you know, if you were wise, um, you knew that salad could only be 
simple greens with a little bit of garlic. Mm. Um, and so that, that salad was a battleground. Uh, and it's, I think it kind of still is. It, well, you look back to, um, you know, going away from just the American uh, compendium of, of cookbooks, but in ancient Roman times, salad was was the main category of all foods, basically. Right. I mean, salads right. were everything. You know. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that it comes to be so specialized, right? When you think of the world of salad out there and the history of salad, that it should, it should be defined so specifically as one right thing and lots of wrong things, right. lots of fakes, really. Now, in the in the, the um, continuing period of times, obviously, initially, cookbooks were, uh, you know, like a, a chemistry book. You had to, you know, you know, follow the rules. You had to go step by, well, didn't have to follow those, <laughs> but they were suggestions on how to cook. Right. Could people actually cooked from the books. Then what happened? People didn't, there were a period of time that something mm-hmm. changed. People didn't really cook from the books necessarily. Well, I think the earliest cookbooks the people most likely to be cooking were also least likely to be literate. So it know. wasn't the person, the person cooking wasn't reading. It was her boss, the woman, the housewife, right. the house, you know, who read the recipes and suggested to cook, let's have this, and this is how you would do it. <coughs> Sorry. So there's, there's really a gap um, and a fascinating gap, which I would love to be able to um, time travel to see uh, between the word and the deed in those cookbooks. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's actually not for a really long time. Um, It's really not till, I'd say the 1920s, that the reader and the cook are definitely going to be the same same. person. Yeah. 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 Uh, And that's, that's also when you see the beginning of more fanciful cookbooks that are more visually appealing because they're reaching out to the person who has the disposable income, right? right? The woman who's buying the cookbook now for herself for her own um, instruction and, and often entertainment, right? Not to instruct somebody else how to yeah. do things properly. Well, in fact, a lot of those early cookbooks were not solely recipes and cookbooks. They were housekeeping oh, yeah. books. It was everything you needed I mean, to yeah. run a house. How right. to make soap and how to properly sweep a floor. And right. How to <laughs> and that's <laughs> also really, it's also really fascinating because it shows that there wasn't a kind of, the same kind of, boundaries that we have now between cooking and the rest of housekeeping, that it was all kind of one endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have just books for cooking, and I don't, there really aren't that many books for cleaning. Maybe I just stay out of that section of the yeah. library. So yeah. There may be more than I think. <laughs> I don't want to know about well, them. And also, I mean, that's, that's a whole other uh, segment of history that you look right. at. And of course, who was the expected person you know, picking yeah. up these books? And it's and also it was a different a... opportunity to commodify something, right? Yeah. So now right. there's it's it's more cookbook now is more kind of niche marketing, and I'm sure that's probably true for books about cleaning too. That that's that can be sold separately. Well, and initially, I mean, it was the woman's the household was the woman's purview. Right. I mean, or to, at least if if she were well to do, to instruct the staff or herself to yeah. to do it, and. Um, and those books, too, I think, were very informative in many different ways, which, which you found, and you even mentioned, too, that um, there was this connection to commodities and things, that women were very much part of the whole commercial thing. We learned a lot about material culture from those books as well. Yes, yeah, and I'd say if Cindy Lobel is the best writer <laughs> yeah, on yeah, this, yeah. Um, on especially on 19th century women's household uh, commodities. But, yeah, when you open up um, one of the household compendiums, you're, you're really entering a world, and it's not just a world of objects and 
um, consumer goods. It's an object. It's a world of um, a really philosophy of life, of how to live, of a book of responsibilities. Um, you know that if you're a woman, all of those things in the book are your responsibility. Nobody else is going to do this stuff. I mean, you have servants to actually do the work, but the management of it um, is is it has to become part of your identity, which is really different from the way things are today. I think. Right. Um, it, ha- having servants to do them for you is it brings up another topic, and that is the um, the unbelievable uh, uh, wealth of southern books devoted to southern cooking and southern cookbooks. Right. As you say, the, the, you know, devoted to the cooking of the lost cause, mm-hmm. as, as they would say. Um, that would be a whole that's a whole topic and a whole show in itself yeah. <laughs> especially now with we you know we there are so many things that, you know the um uh talking about giving back to you know mm-hmm. acknowledging where the foods came from right and post-slavery and who brought these foods so i mean this is all contained in looking at cookbooks this is yes you, yeah you have you write an amazing chapter on that oh, thank that's, you that's really quite good um uh, one thing that i wanted to to share with our listeners because I use the term a lot my guests use the term a lot and you did a such a great job of defining the term food waste because it's a word that's bandied about a lot by those who are in the food studies departments Mm -hmm. or in in culinary history what do we when we talk about food waste what you tell us what we mean by that Okay, I hope I get it right. <laughs> um, we can go back to the book and look it up. Well, it's, it also depends on who you are and what your real interest is, what you emphasize. But for me, foodways is the making, the eating, and the thinking about food all intertwined. Um, so it's, it's everything from the seed to the restaurant review. Um, and for my part, I'm, I'm most interested in meanings, um, how food comes to mean something, but I'm interested in it all along that route from the seed to the restaurant review or the, you know, the happy belch at the end of the meal, I guess, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of restaurant review. I mean, it's so all-encompassing. It really is. Right. Yeah. And it's that when you think about that is what Foodways is, that you can see why it's worth having the field of food studies. And, right. you know, I, it's not just a kind of frivolous entertainment. <laughs> right, right. Well, we will continue okay. with this talk, frivolous or not, we'll <laughs> continue with this talk um, in just a minute after we take a short break. So stay with us. the show you heard that this program has been brought to you by martha and marley spoon martha stewart's best recipes delivered to your door if you're like most heritage radio listeners you love cooking quick healthy meals on weeknights but sometimes get stuck when you don't have time for planning shopping and prepping or maybe you're short on new and interesting dinner ideas Or dreading a trip to the grocery store. Who wants to haul all those bags home after a long day at work? Not me. That's why I'm excited to share Martha and Marley Spoon with you. They send seasonal, pre-portioned ingredients and Martha Stewart's best recipes right to your door. No grocery shopping, no schlepping. You can choose from 10 healthy recipes a week and get delicious meals on the table in just 30 minutes. How does it work? Simply go to MarleySpoon.com. Choose your delivery day and select your dishes. 
It's completely flexible, so you can skip, cancel, or change preferences anytime. You'll never waste food again, and best of all, it's easy to use with six beautifully photographed steps for each 30-minute recipe. Now, I have to say that I did try. They sent me a couple to try because I wasn't going to read this if I didn't try them. So I tried three very interesting dishes. Balsamic tamari steak with grain and mushroom stir-fry, chicken in peanut sauce with noodles and snow peas, and celery, fennel, and quinoa salad with fried chickpeas, almonds, and feta. Now, all of the meals are really interesting sounding, just like that. And the one thing that I was impressed with, well, many things that I was impressed with, but I was impressed with the fact that they were packed and shipped very well with a lot of freezer packs. It was really cold when I got my ingredients. And the meats were all marked. Those that had meats were marked sustainably raised and no antibiotics. And the portions of the other ingredients were all specific to the recipe. So there really was no waste, which I I thought was very thoughtful. They were flavorful and nutritious. I didn't think I needed the grains in in one of the steak and vegetable recipes. I thought, oh, that's going to be too much. By the time I finished cooking it all, it wasn't too much. It was just the right portion for two people, which I had selected a two-person. And it was more nutritious than I would have made ordinarily. Interesting dishes that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of. So I urge you to try it. It's a good plan. And you know what? If you want to try it out, Go to marleyspoon.com before you do anything else and choose your meal plan now. On the checkout page, just type in the code HERITAGE for your three free meals. That's marleyspoon.com. Enter the code HERITAGE. Hi, we're back, and we are talking about cookbooks, the history of American cookbooks, to be precise, with Megan Elias. And Megan's new book is called Food on the Page. Megan, it truly is a fascinating book, I mean, for me particularly, because I've just been immersed in this for years and years, as you have too, I know, researching the book. But um, we we didn't really talk about regionality, and, and if you looked for that at all, did, is that something that you did look for or didn't find or what what's what about regionality in American cookbooks that was a great disappointment to me um because I saw as I was looking through catalogs I would see things like you know the Michigan Homesteaders cookbook and I great I'm going to find out what they ate in Michigan in 1897 um and what I found out was that all of these locally named cookbooks locally produced cookbooks tended to all fall into the same pattern. So they were community cookbooks, which is an enormous genre. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. But what was, there was much more, the cookbooks had much more in common with each other, no matter where they were from, than they had different. Hmm. So they really weren't a key into regional specialties. They were another great thing, which was a key into um, middle-class culture, middle-class white culture at the turn of the century, which is the kind of their heyday. So... They allowed me to see um, the the spread of lobster Newburgh from the East Coast all the way out across the Midwest and over to the West Coast. So to see food fashions, um, because everybody, it seems that everybody who shared a recipe for a community cookbook wanted to present herself as, um, you know, a legitimate member of this particular culture, not a kind of local... Uh, 
a, you know, character, not an eccentric, but someone who knew the lobster Newberg was the thing. Was to, it right? You you've made it. If you you know, if you're serving lobster Newberg to your guests, you must exactly. really be something, right? <laughs> and I think if I were to go into looking at cookbooks today, I'd see a lot more regional attention and a lot more regional stories too that they came out. Um, people are much more interested in hearing about the food of the hollers and you know the food of the prairies uh, than they were in the 19th century. But that, in a way, it's it's for it's always for a national audience at this point too, which makes it um, really a different kind of story too. Yeah, um, you mentioned, and we talked uh, just before the break about the uh, the writing of the South, the Southern cookbooks, writing of the Lost Cause. Why do you think that is that there were so many cookbooks on Southern cooking? Well, I, I mean, I think it's part of the larger project of, of the South to, um, to, in, to win the war culturally. Mm. Uh, and so it's not surprising there, you know, there's literature, you know, fiction that, um, that also does this work, um, music, definitely, um, and, uh, and the whole legend, right, this whole idea of the, the hospitality of the South, which we're still kind of buying into today. So, um, there was, you know, it definitely was successful. The, the market for Southern cookbooks was successful because the North also wanted to hear those stories. And so there's a kind of a complicity <coughs> from Northern northern readers and Northern publishers in the South's recreation of itself with these this mythology and um, the erasure of black cooks mm-hmm. who really don't appear in any guise but the faithful, loving um, plantation cook until the 1960s when, um, with one exception of Frida DeKnight, who wrote in the 40s, um, when, they, when they come out as themselves with their own cuisine and their own stories, really, uh, independent from that Southern mythology. Right. And now we're seeing, again, it, you know, that happened around the 60s. Now, again, it is, um, you talked about, Certain cookbooks, certain style of cooking as fashion and food and fashion is it you know that's well it's another topic too but uh, it's very much in the news today. There, there once again, southern cooking is is hugely popular yes. and people want to find out more about you know where where did these recipes come from where right. you know where did they start yeah. but also just the as you mentioned hospitality the southern cooking right uh, it's just it's once again. Very large. I mean, and I think that comes also in in reaction to what we see as the over standardization, over commercialization of uh-huh. food. You know that that everything can be everything. Every food experience can be bought fully packaged. So a, a, an attempt to return to almost like the slow food movement to return to um, kind of household origins of cooking. Also, a, maybe a reaction to the big restaurant culture and celebrity chefdom. Uh, I noticed a lot recently, a lot of emphasis on Appalachian cooking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a kind of a, a, a home cooking that's maybe separate from the Southern Plantation legend, right? right. right? And, and in fact, it, it, was the, it was the top winner at the yes. uh, IACP Festival, and Ronnie Lundy. And at Lundy. James Beard, right? At James um, Beard, Ronnie yeah. Lundy. Run, well, that's what it was, yeah, she won the, uh, the award at James Beard. And Festival. there was so much appreciation and love for her. When she won as an Appalachian, right? right. Yeah, yeah, representing a region. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the popular chefs, and that, of course, was you know a whole break in a period of time. Um, as you said, the palette of personality was the title of one of your chapters, which I thought was cute. Yeah, the, the, it, the, they aren't cookbooks that anyone buys for the recipes or to cook from. 
it's sort of a little touch with stardom. They want to, you know, be part of those lives. What was the rave of person? I mean, of, of popularity behind this genre of the the star driven or chef driven cookbooks? Yeah, that was really interesting, and I had no idea that was coming <laughs> as I was looking through cookbooks. Um, it seems a lot of it seems to have come out of the experience of baby boomers becoming adults. So a real like a lot of attention on um, personal growth, um, personal. Uh, sort of realization. So the idea that to become yourself is the most important thing you can do rather than, you know, to get a steady job and support your family, which had been the kind of previous wartime generation's mm-hmm. goal. So people, oh, I guess that the, the concept would be like self-actualization, that that you began to see people trying to actualize themselves through food, through their cooking. And that, I think, is a really... Um, a lot of it is closely tied to Alice Waters, who did very much the same thing. You know, she didn't set out to be a chef. She, I think she set out to, like, have great conversations about politics and feed people while they were doing that. And so that's that's a great example of of someone coming to food as a way to to create a community, to create something that, they, that has to do very much with themselves. Um, so as... <coughs> Has the um, this rise of cooks or chefs who are cooking for their own pleasure became kind of more and more popular, and a lot of them came up through Alice Waters' kitchen. Um, that kind of grew into an idea of celebrity, and it's also remember happening at the same time. The television is happening, and mass popular culture and um, travel. Um, domestic travel, Americans are getting around their own country more, they're getting out of their country more. They're also, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there's there's much more um, eating in public, you mm-hmm. know, than there had been in the past. It became much more common for a kind of ordinary middle class family to go out to dinner than it had been before. Before, you know, it was just special occasions. But, you know, now people go out just because, right? Just they don't feel like cooking, so they'll go out to a nice meal. Right, right. Um, and these uh, uh, these trends all led to, and you mentioned television too, of course I'm first-hand knowledge with the, with the Food Network, but um, that this was, that more and more our conversations started to center around food. Right. And so there was more food writing. And that brings us into, you know, the 21st century of, of tons of information. I mean, we're bombarded with, right. with information on well, many things, but food included. Yes. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I try to imagine where is it going, where it could, you know, what is the saturation point? Is there going to be a moment when everybody says, I don't care about food anymore? But I, I really don't think so. I mean, kind of hard not yeah. to care about food. Right. right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and I, I see it, you know, as each person becomes their own media, <laughs> you know, center, right? Everybody can Instagram what they're eating. Everybody can blog about what they're eating. Everybody can tweet about the restaurant they just went to. So each person becomes their own, in a sense, channel, right? right. Um, there's just sort of infinite possibility for, for, for food discourse to grow and to diversify. Um, I think it's incredibly exciting, actually. I know people mock the Instagramming of food, but I just love that everyone is interested and thinks other people will be interested too in what they had for lunch. Well, and you wrote <laughs> something that that you know just sort of put it in black and white. It's like, oh yeah, but but you but you actually wrote about wrote it down, and that it's this there is this communal nature about online food writing 
And it's right. true. We, I mean, we formed our own little communities. We share with others um, the people that we might never talk to or, you right. know, there's something in common. There's like, you know, if you have kids and you're in a community with a school, your common interests are the right. kids in school, right? This is another common interest. You're not, a, you don't have a dog to walk, so yes. we can all talk about food, right? Yeah. So everyone, I'm mean, one of my favorite food bloggers is Deb Perelman. And it's not just her, but that everybody who reads her and comments on her becomes a community. So it's not just that you cooked with Deb, you cooked with, you know, the other people who commented and said, I made it, but I added less salt. Yes. Or, you know, so it's always, we're always tinkering. And you become, um, you know, you really can get into the kitchen with strangers in a way that doesn't happen with a printed cookbook as as easily. It's sort That's of right. like one I mean, you can read the marginalia, you can read right. the comments um, after recipes, but not quite the same as almost live, you know, in real yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Uh, and you mentioned something else about um, the online writing and blogging, and that's a democratization of our food world. Tell us, what, what did you mean by that? Well, I meant that anyone can have a blog and anyone's blog can catch on. So anyone can become Julia Child today. You know, Julia Child went through well. so much. Right? <laughs> well. She went through so much to get her book out yes. and then so yes. much to become, for it to become popular and to become important. And I think it doesn't take that level of effort anymore to get your work, your you're thinking about food out to share your recipes, to share your ideas about food, your philosophy about food, um, pretty much how food fits into your life, which is an interesting thing that um, is coming up more and more in cookbooks in the last 10 years um, and is always visible on blogs, right? You always see people's dogs or their kids in the pictures. Um, you get a peek into their kitchens. But it's really, it, it does give everybody access, both as a reader and as a writer, to um, to kind of common conversation about about food. All right, right. Um, the uh, writing you must have noticed over the years. Um, you know, food writing has never been cons- for many years was not considered legitimate writing. It wasn't it's definitely not scholarly writing. It was um, not even journalism. Things are changing on that, and indeed there are food tweets, there are food tumblers, there are, there are food that's not great writing, but then there are some blogs, some are quite amazing, mm-hmm. and then there are books on food written, and now food studies courses, where the writing has just, you know, exploded. Yes. And you said that, interestingly enough, that food writing helps create cultural knowledge. <sighs> Let's go with that a little <laughs> okay. bit. Where, how did you see, did you see waves of changes? I mean, was it respected at first and then downgraded, or what? Yeah, um, let's see. That's difficult. Um, I think in that food, some of the first food writing that wasn't cookbook writing Mm -hmm. um, that I saw in my research was to do with travel writing. So it's at that level, it's it's just sort of a step below journalism in some ways. And it's definitely travel writing... um, in the 30s and 40s, when we really start to see it in magazines, um, travel writing is, a, is more respectable than women's sections of newspapers or, you know, Women's Daily Journal or whatever, all those those magazines. Well, they change it from the women's page to the living section and then, right. I don't know. Only <laughs> women live, apparently. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so w- when it, it entered into 
American literature through travel writing. And this someone must write a book about because there's just so much material there that I didn't touch. Um, food as travel writing was often a, often written by men. So it was treated a little more seriously than writing about cooking, mm -hmm. which is done by women. Um, and then there's a kind of flood of... Uh, of, of food um, journalism that comes on the tale of gourmet, gourmet, bon appetit. And then it becomes a little bit discredited because it's so clearly about going into the kitchen and doing something, mm -hmm. which is still low status for a long time. Um, and it's not, I think not till, uh, again, not really till the Alice Waters era that people begin to see food writers as writers. And MFK Fisher existed just for a kind of select yes. group of readers for right. a really long time, almost till she was dead. And then more people and began people to notice. And people said, oh, this woman right. can write. Right. <laughs> and it's not just she writes well about food. She writes beautifully about life. Right. Uh, and that's what people began to understand. And, that, um, and then, you know, that really excites people and inspires people like Ruth Reichel, who can also write beautifully about life mm -hmm. by writing about food. So it's definitely on the on the rise in terms of respectability. I mean, when Jonathan Gold won the Pulitzer Prize for writing about right. restaurants, I thought that was a really exciting moment, and I'm just, like, waiting for the next food book to win the Pulitzer. Um, but I think we're, we're seeing um, both more commercial value to food writing and also more understanding that you're sometimes writing about food and other stuff at the same time, that it's not an either-or. Mm -hmm. You can write about a hamburger and it's not a recipe for a hamburger only. It's a lot of other things, too. So when you say that you were you wrote this book, as we wrap up here, on cookbooks, a history, a compendium of American <laughs> cookbooks, a history of American cookbooks and American culture, or answering the question, what is American food? Did you really set out to try to answer that question to yourself? What is American food? No, I had the answer to, for this, to the question in my own mind. Um, so for me, American food is what people eat in America, no matter what Good. it is or where they're from. And that's simple. Yeah. Um, so what I wanted to know was what does everybody else say about it? How does the discourse change? How does it fold and unfold over time? Um, what are the politics of it? And, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're very much in an era where that, that seems to matter a lot. I recently collected a lot of um, pictures of posters from protest rallies that mentioned food. Oh, interesting. Things like, um, you know, Yemen gave us coffee, have some respect. So a, a way to express how much food is part of our daily life, but also part of our political existence, too. Um, so I, I was always looking for the discussion about American food, what it is, whether it's good or bad. Um, and for that reason, I think there's, again, there are six or seven other books that can be written with the same sources I used that will tell different stories. Um, you could tell the story about how are, what foods are presented as not American or as other. Mm -hmm. um, the history of ethnic so-called cookbooks in America would be an amazing and wonderful right. book. Well, you even mentioned um, <coughs> that within the discussion of American foods and American cookbooks, there are some international dishes thrown in there that are just oh, yes. considered as as normal, as right. regular, as you know, which now we're saying, you know, should Americans serve tacos? I mean, <laughs> but that's but that was part of the discourse at that yeah. time. That was just part of the meal because, you know, people were here and that's what they were cooking and right. that was American food and as well. even though, I mean, we know, if you just think about it for a minute, you know that 150 years ago, people in the continental U.S. were eating all kinds of food, you know, that there was not just sort of one palate. 
um, that it was diverse and interesting and spicy and all that stuff. Um, but what really, uh, really comes through when you look in cookbooks is that that also makes it into print, too, that America has, has at least since the first American cookbook, has been um, a very diverse eating place. Many different flavors, many different influences, and a lot of stuff just taken for granted. Yeah, of course you have Ropa Vieja, you know, in the 18th century, mm-hmm. right? That's just part of regular food in America. And I think for a long time we've had this idea that American food has been plain and uninteresting and we only we're it, we're always always just discovering the new stuff and learning how to eat but what the books showed me was that that isn't true that it's always been a much more um diverse and complicated palette than than that story says well and it's intriguing that even some of that stuff even made it into print i yeah. mean i think that's you know that's quite remarkable there are Hundreds of great stories in this book. I mean, it's a, <laughs> okay. and and it's what's nice is that it's not about p- the particular cookbooks themselves. It's just about the changes, the trends, mm-hmm. the the as you say, the discourse that comes up in talking about the food on the page and what was being written about and what your own interpretation is when you read these books. It's very, very interesting. And I thank you so much for sharing the discussion with me. Again, the the book is called Food on the Page. It's out on June 7th. And my guest is Megan Elias. Thanks so much for listening. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.